0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This is the TED Radio Hour. and NPR. I'm Manush Zamarodi. and for most kids around the country, school is officially out of session. But unlike other summers, many kids and teens are stuck at home because of the coronavirus pandemic. And so today, we've got an episode for everyone. Kids, adults, parents, teens, you are all invited on this journey because we've invited a certain dad back on the show to share the coolest things he's learned over the years here on the TED Radio Hour, topics to blow the minds of young and old. And um, Mystery guest host, can you please introduce yourself?
2: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. (laughs) I'm Guy Raz. Hello,
0: Manouche. Yay. Hello, Guy. Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so Guy, not only were you the host of this show until you so graciously handed over the reins to me, but you are also the host of a rather popular podcast for kids, right?
2: Yeah, it's called Wow in the World. It's a journey through real scientific research. And it sounds a little weird, but um, it's like a cartoon for the ear, where me and my co-host Mindy Thomas go on journeys into space and back in time and underwater and everywhere in between searching for incredible scientific discoveries. And it's this joyful, wonderful experience for us and and hopefully for the kids who listen to the show.
0: Well, that includes my kids. And we sort of figured since you and I are both home with our children this summer, we thought, you know, you'd be the perfect person to come on and curate a special summer show for the entire TED Radio Hour family. And you have so kindly brought four of your favorite segments that you did over the years. How did you even begin to choose which segments you were going to bring to us?
2: Well, I think like you probably experienced, Manoush, there are a lot of TED Talks that my kids love and are are really Mm -hmm. inspired by. And then there are some that, you know, of course, are sort of over their heads, right? But (laughs) I really wanted to bring segments that spoke to curiosity and the sort of the Awe that kids naturally have about the world, yeah. and so that's how we kind of came up with this this collection.
0: And I will say, I did feel that way uh, about the first segment that you brought to us. This one oh, yeah. is called "How Do Trees Collaborate?" Tell us about it. Yeah,
2: I love this segment so much. Um, so basically, scientists for, for basically forever thought that trees competed against each other for resources, right? For for water and sun. Um, And nutrients. And, you know, they figured that the tallest trees in the forest were the strongest trees. Right. It makes sense. Right. But Suzanne Simard, the scientist that we're about to hear from, she totally changed the way that scientists now think about trees because it turns out they don't compete at all. In fact, trees collaborate. They work together through this, this mysterious underground superhighway.
0: There is an entire communication network happening under our feet. Let's listen.
2: Forest ecologist Suzanne Simard had a hunch. Yes, that's right. She thought that trees could talk.
3: Just imagine, like, when you're walking through the forest, you might you hear the crunching of the twigs under your feet and the rustling of the leaves.
2: But she thought, what if there's more going
3: on? Like a big chattering going on that we can't hear. That they're attuned to each other.
2: Now, at the time, a team of scientists in England were wrapping up an experiment.
3: Where they'd grown in the laboratory these pine seedlings together in little root boxes that you could see through.
2: And the scientists took two of these pine seedlings, these baby trees, that were in the same box, in the same dirt... And then they exposed one of these seedlings to a radioactive carbon dioxide gas.
3: Carbon-14, a radioactive carbon.
2: And what they found was that some of that radioactive gas, the carbon-14, made its way into the second seedling. You could visualize it. You could see it. And so from this experiment, it seemed that somehow these two plants in the same dirt were connected. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe this is what's going on in my forest. Maybe, Suzanne Simard thought, maybe all the trees in a forest were connected in a kind of network.
3: Yeah, like our airport system, our transportation system, um, our social networks.
2: And maybe, she thought, all of this was happening underground
3: when we walk through the forest, what we see as human beings, we just see these, you know, beautiful trees growing out of the ground, but we don't see that they're actually completely linked underground in this superhighway.
2: So Suzanne decided to prove this underground network existed. She devised an experiment using some of the same radioactive gas, a Geiger counter to measure it, and a patch of birch and fir trees.
3: I figured the birch and the fir would be connected
2: in a below-ground web. Suzanne picks up the story from the TED stage.
3: And I gathered my apparatus, plastic bags and duct tape and shade cloth, a paper suit, a respirator. And then I borrowed some high-tech stuff from my university. The first day of the experiment, we got out to our plot, and I pulled on my white paper suit, I put on my respirator, I put the plastic bags over my trees. I got my giant syringes, and I injected carbon-14, the radioactive gas, into the bag of birch. I waited an hour. I figured it would take this long for the trees to suck up the CO2 through photosynthesis, send it down into their roots, and maybe shuttle that carbon below ground to their neighbors. I went to my first bag with the birch. I pulled the bag off. I ran my Geiger counter over its leaves. (sighs) Perfect. The birch had taken up the radioactive gas. Then, the moment of truth, I went over to the fir tree. I pulled off its bag. I ran the Geiger counter up its needles, and I heard the most beautiful sound. (sighs) (laughs) It was the sound of birch talking to fir. And birch was saying, Hey, can I help you? And fir was saying, Yeah, can you send me some of your carbon? I was so excited, I ran from plot to plot, and I checked all 80 replicates. The evidence was clear. Paper, Birch, and Douglas were in a lively two-way conversation. So it turns out the two species were interdependent, like yin and yang. And at that moment, everything came into focus for me. I knew I'd found something big, something that would change the way we look at how trees interact in forests, from not just competitors, but to cooperators.
2: Now, you have to understand that Suzanne's discovery was pretty revolutionary because up until this point, most ecologists believed that trees competed against each other, that that their world was like a, a Darwinian struggle with winners and losers.
3: Yeah, you know, that they're competing for light and water and nutrients.
2: And that the strongest trees were the ones that grew tall, the ones that dominated the canopy and took all the resources. But Suzanne's experiment showed that something else was true.
3: They're actually sending messages back and forth that balances the resource distribution among the
2: community. In other words, trees aren't just connected. They're actually sharing resources with each other.
3: So what we found initially, if one tree had a lot of of water in it or a lot of nitrogen or had high photosynthetic rate, and if one tree is sick, then... The neighboring tree shuttles more of those nutrients to that suffering tree.
2: And when you say communicate, do do they actually communicate? Like do they warn each other about like a a fire or, or an invasive species or something?
3: Yes. So if one tree gets damaged by, say, mountain pine beetle, the injured seedling will up its defense enzymes and then the receiving tree will then increase its defense enzymes because it knows now that there's some kind of damaging Agent around.
2: Wow. So, so how are they? How are they doing this? Like, how are they communicating through through an underground network?
3: So they're physically connected um, by these microscopic fungi
2: and. So mushrooms.
3: Yes, y- you're right. We call them hyphae or mycelium. In fact, like if you were to you know peel back the surface of the forest floor, you'll see the fungi that are linking these trees together. They're very visible, and it's these white and yellow different colored threads that are they look like you know sewing threads but they're fungal threads and they're crisscrossed and going off in multiple directions Um, and they work together to create a very you know a very complex web and they're in constant communication between all the trees forests aren't simply collections of trees They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate, and they provide avenues for feedbacks and adaptation. And this makes the forest resilient. That's because there are many hub trees and many overlapping networks. But they're also vulnerable, because hub trees are not unlike rivets in an airplane. You can take out one or two, and the plane still flies. But you take out one too many, or maybe that one holding on the wings... (laughs) and the whole system collapses. Well, you know, the great thing about forests, as complex systems, is they have enormous capacity to self-heal. In our recent experiments, we found with retention of hub trees and regeneration to a diversity of species and genes and genotypes, that these mycorrhizal networks, they recover really rapidly. We need to regenerate our forests with a diversity of species and genotypes and structures by planting and allowing natural regeneration. We have to give Mother Nature the tools she needs to use her intelligence to self-heal. And we need to remember that forests aren't just a bunch of trees competing with each other. They're super cooperators. Thank you.
0: Oh, so good. Guy... Mm. Do you think about this segment like every time you <laughs> go for a walk yeah. through a forest? I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I all the time. I, I live in California, um, in Northern California, and um, and every time I'm in a redwood forest, I think about Suzanne Simard and and how trees and forests are models f- for us for human beings
0: in terms of the resiliency that they can help build um, in groups. I mean, I I feel yeah. like this. This idea of helping each other, having that cooperation in our roots is actually really, really wonderful to think about in light of what's been going on in the world right now and how much we need our neighborhoods and our communities to be resilient and help each other.
2: Yeah. I mean, we will all at some point in our lives need help and we can all also help. Mm. It's an incredibly simple idea, but it's also so powerful and Suzanne's research just puts it out into the world in such a beautiful way.
0: Okay. When we come back, um, Guy, we're going to go from the forest to the Caribbean Sea and some dolphins who actually have some things to say and communicate. You want to make some clicking dolphin noises for me here? (laughs) I'm Anoush Sommarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us.
4: Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.
0: This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject credit approval. Terms apply. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, And on the show today, ideas for curious thinkers of all ages. And our guide on this hour is my predecessor, Guy Raz. Hello. Hello. Okay, so, Guy, <laughs> we just heard Suzanne Simard tell us about how trees cooperate with one another. And it really gets you thinking about how all kinds of other beings may be communicating, which brings yeah. us to the next topic that you brought us. Dolphins.
2: Oh, man. yeah. Can't
0: go wrong with dolphins. Can't go do wrong
2: with dolphins. Um, I, I learned about, and dolphins like communicate through clicks, right? Yeah. And I learned about this from the person we're about to hear, Denise Herzing. She has spent her entire life studying a, a very specific pod of dolphins in the Bahamas. And I remember, Manush, I remember seeing this TED Talk in person in mm-hmm. 2013. Mm-hmm. And I was totally blown away at the idea that one day we might be able to to talk to communicate with not just with dolphins but with animals like mm-hmm. like dr Doolittle right I was were you fascinated <laughs> by that story as a kid remember that yes, totally. and and we are closer to that possibility today than ever before I've seen lots of pictures of of you underwater I'm holding a camera um, when you're down there does it feel like it's almost like a I don't know, like a, just a better place to be. I don't, I don't do, do you ever get that feeling?
5: Well, you know, it's an immersion into a three-dimensional world. You know, the tides and the currents and the salt and the waves. And I mean, that all feeds into your understanding of what their world is like. But usually when I'm down there, I'm like trying to follow behavior and making sure my camera's on. Right.
2: So it's actually mostly work, really. Right. Denise Herzing has been doing that work every summer with the same group of dolphins in the Bahamas. Let's see, I just calculated it recently. For 35 years.
5: Yeah, like 3,000 encounters in the water with the dolphins. And then each of those encounters is about 20 minutes long. So
2: Over 1,000 hours of footage and observational data. So yeah, it's a lot of data, certainly for dolphins. And the point of all that data, of all that work is to help Denise answer one question. Do they have a language? And if so, what are they talking about? Here's Denise Herzing on the TED stage.
5: Now, I'm interested in dolphins because of their large brains. And we know they use some of that brain power for just living complicated lives. But what do we really know about dolphin intelligence? We know that their brain-to-body ratio, which is a physical measure of intelligence, is second only to humans cognitively, they can understand artificially created languages, and they pass self-awareness tests in mirrors, and in some parts of the world, they use tools like sponges to hunt fish. Now, dolphins are natural acousticians. They make sounds 10 times as high and hear sounds 10 times as high as we do, but they have other communication signals they use. They have good vision, so they use body postures to communicate. They have taste, not smell, and they have touch. And sound can actually be felt in the water because the acoustic impedance of tissue in water is about the same. So dolphins can buzz and tickle each other at a distance. So decades ago, not years ago, <laughs> I set out to find a place in the world where I could observe dolphins underwater and to try to crack the code of their communication system.
2: Well, well first of all, how, how do dolphins communicate to each other?
5: You know, we can actually hear a fair amount. Um, Their whistles are fairly audible to us. They have clicks. They have burst pulses, which are also packets of clicks. So they have all these different cues and they, you know, use body postures in combination with sounds that will basically um, communicate certain things to each other.
2: You know, um, this is total anthropomorphization. Um, but uh, like when you think of a, like when you see a dolphin animated or drawn in a kid's book, they seem to be smiling. But we should not interpolate that that means that they're happy all the time, right?
5: Oh, definitely not. Yeah, that (laughs) is just a, a a physical thing that they have going, yeah.
2: How do you respond when other researchers say, you know, push back and say, hey, like, let's not do that. Let's not anthropomorphize these creatures.
5: You know, you just keep doing your work. I think uh, I don't even think it's a discussion anymore, honestly. And most of us that work with social mammals, I think, have kind of moved beyond that and just say, "Well, it's a valuable tool for thinking about how they might think, and, and let's
2: do the work." Is it? Is it even weird to talk about dolphin language, or or is is it? Should we be talking about dolphin communication?
5: Yeah, we don't really usually talk about language because we don't know if they have it yet. Um, But thinking out of the box is, you know, it's like intelligence. You know, are there different kinds and types of intelligence? Are there different kinds and types of language? I mean, we know there's tons of kinds of language with humans, right? But one of the big things about language is that you can communicate about uh, different time and space, right? Are they talking about the food they're chasing? Are they eating? Or are they talking about, hey, let's go to the reef in a couple of days and meet up with this other group? You know, we don't know. And that's where... You know, anthropomorphism can be a tool for
2: thinking about how animals might be thinking. Which brings us back to the Bahamas and a pivotal moment in Denise Herzing's years of work with Atlantic spotted dolphins there. It happened one summer. I guess in the mid 90s. The dolphins did something they had never done with Denise
5: before. We just started noticing. The dolphins would just start doing things, and this is completely wild, right? Uh, but we knew the individuals, and they would start doing things like mimicking our body posture, in some cases mimicking like the rhythm of our sounds in the water if we were doing anything vocally. And we just kind of thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to see if we empowered them to communicate back to us?
2: And the key to unlocking that communication turned out to be play. Dolphins, just like humans, love to play games, mostly with toys, a piece of rope, a bit of seaweed, anything they can pull around in the water. Correct. So what kind of games um, do they like to play? Well, it's mostly called (laughs) keep-away.
5: That is, if they get the toy, then the idea is they like to be chased. Um, They like to let you get almost close enough to grab the toy, but then they speed off, and that's the game. That's what they play with each other, actually.
2: The only question was how to use that play to crack the code, the code that would unlock the meaning behind the dolphins' noises. Now,
5: one way to crack the code is to interpret these signals and figure out what they mean. But it's a difficult job, and we actually don't have a Rosetta Stone yet. But a second way to crack the code is to develop some technology, an interface to do two-way communication. And that's what we've been trying to do in the Bahamas and in real time. So we built a portable keyboard that we could pushed through the water, and we uh, labeled four objects they like to play with: the scarf rope, sargassum, and also had a bow ride, which is a fun activity for a dolphin. And that's the scarf whistle. And these are artificially created whistles. They're outside the dolphin's normal repertoire, um, but they're easily mimicked by the dolphins. And I spent four years with my colleagues Adam Pack and Fabian Delfour working out in the field with this keyboard, using it with each other to do requests for toys while the dolphins were watching. And the dolphins could get in on the game. They could point at the visual object or they could mimic the whistle.
2: Another way to imagine this experiment, Denise says, is think of how you try to teach words to a baby. And you're trying to get them to understand the word milk.
5: So you have a glass of milk and you're going, here's some milk, or do you want the milk, or would you like some milk? So we're not really teaching them commands. We're exposing them to the communication system with the hopes that they'll learn to use it to communicate
2: back to us what they want. Okay, so an underwater keyboard, four buttons, each with a different whistle sound for a different toy. So the dolphins were actually doing
5: really cool things like we would play the computer whistle, say like, for sargassum, which is a piece of seaweed they play with. And the dolphins would immediately tag on another whistle to the end of the computer whistle.
2: So, yeah, the answer to the question, do dolphins have a language, is maybe, kind of. They certainly have a desire to communicate. So now, Denise and her fellow researchers are teaming up with a group of computer scientists to use machine learning to try to parse and analyze those extra whistles and figure out what they might mean. So that's actually what we're going to be doing late this summer. Well, like like when an anthropologist stumbles on a discovery and some ancient tablet, right, um, mm. they can spend a lifetime trying to decipher it and then figure out what the symbols meant. But that's a physical thing that you can look at, right? I mean, right. you can imagine that th- this is a version of that, but with increasing computing power you could potentially imagine a scenario where the the hieroglyphics so to speak in in dolphin communication could be decoded
5: yeah well that's what we're working on I mean remember you know uh, hieroglyphs is a written, language. Sure. And that's something that dolphins will never have. At least I can't imagine it. But, you know, maybe they have an oral history that they produce like humans did, right, before we even had writing. Um, but yeah, I have no doubt that machine learning is really going to help us
2: parse out the information. So if you if you or I went to Europe 20 years ago, we would have a little phrase book and that might be all we had. And now you can just r- speak into Google translate and then it will pop, and then you can play it and it will play it for somebody you can imagine in 20 or 30 years from now traveling to Asia and speaking in real time and having like a headset around your head that was a simultaneous translator an AI translator that w- would enable you to have a really serious and deep conversation with somebody in their language
5: yeah sure I mean and that's probably coming in shorter than 20 years I would bet yeah right and you know what's 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 really interesting is if you look at how other animals communicate with each other, and they do, right? We're way behind the times because we don't have to communicate with animals, right? But there are a lot of birds that already know the alarm calls of their neighboring species because it helps them survive. So nature already communicates in many ways just without us in the loop. So we probably should get in the loop.
0: That's so beautiful. and. There's no dolphins where I'm spending the summer, Guy, but there are a lot, a lot of birds. And we've Mm. been (laughs) trying, my kids and I have been trying to imitate their calls and see if they'll respond to us. We don't know what we're saying in these bird languages. Hopefully we're being polite back to the birds. (laughs) But I I do love this idea of interspecies communication. It is just awesome. Yes.
2: I mean, how amazing would that be? Right. So like to be able to really communicate with animals. And and I mean, it might as as she says in the segment, like it might be on a different level. It's mm-hmm. not going to be we're not going to be talking about Kierkegaard. <laughs> what, but, you know, you you think about what Denise is working on and then you think about like computing power and how much better computers are going to be able to process information and already mm-hmm. are. And it I mean, it seems like it could be a real possibility.
0: I mean, not just the communication of, you know, needs, but also the playfulness that is part of yeah. the Dolphins world and totally. um, that their favorite game is Keep Away. Dare I yeah. ask what your species, you and your children, <laughs> yes. do you have a favorite game these days?
2: In the middle of quarantine, we've gotten really into Sleeping Queens. That's our jam right now. It's a card game. Oh. Totally. It's awesome. It's good. I've got a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old. We all play it together. Yeah, it's great.
0: Oh, nice. So we're going to move on from the dolphins. And this next idea that you brought us is about uncovering something hidden as well. But this time we're going to talk about uncovering human history with archaeologist Sarah Parkak.
2: Yeah. I mean, man, how can I even begin? I think you know Sarah, too. Mm-hmm. She uses tools of space exploration to dig into our past, into the past here on on planet Earth.
0: Yeah, and what I love about that is that space exploration, like it's not exactly the first thing that comes to mind when you hear archaeology. But for Sarah, the idea kind of runs in the family. So let's listen. My
6: name is Sarah Parkek, and I am an archaeologist.
2: And as an archaeologist, Sarah Parkek searches for traces of past civilizations hidden beneath the Earth for thousands of years. Do you think that every civilization eventually becomes buried and hidden?
6: Um, yeah, I think all civilizations do. I think there are also a lot of civilizations and cultures out there that we don't know about
2: yet. Sarah has discovered an ancient amphitheater under the airport in Rome. Like the equivalent of an ancient cineplex. An unknown temple in Petra.
6: Could be a temple, not
2: sure. And the lost city of Tanis in Egypt. It was Egypt's capital for about 400 years. And how Sarah discovered these sites? Not by digging, but by building on a technique used by her grandfather.
6: My grandfather, Harold Young, was one of the pioneers of using aerial photography and forestry. And so uh, by the time I got to college, I thought, if Grampy did this for forestry, I, I bet lots of people have done this for archaeology. It would be fun to see what he did. And I really, I feel like I that, that was the first kid in the candy store. You know, virtually no one had used it before in Egypt.
2: So after Sarah graduated, she started to experiment with a method that has now completely revolutionized archaeology. And as she explained on the TED stage, it's earned her a special title.
6: I'm a space archaeologist. Let me repeat that. I am a space archaeologist. This means that I use satellite images and process them using algorithms and look at subtle differences in the light spectrum that indicate buried things under the ground that I get to go excavate and survey. And by the way, NASA has a space archaeology program, so it's a real job. (laughs) This is from a site south of Cairo, so let's have a look from space. You can't see anything. When we process the image, this is what you see. This rectilinear form is an ancient tomb that is previously unknown and unexcavated, and you all are the
2: first people to see it in thousands of years. Okay, so how does it work? How do you use satellite images to find, you know, hidden places?
6: So satellite imagery um, allows us to do two things. Uh, It allows us to look at sites with a fresh pair of eyes. But why they're really valuable is that they record information in different parts of the light spectrum um, that we simply can't see with our human eyes. So... Imagine there's a stone wall somewhere in Italy that dates to the Roman period. So roughly 2,000 years ago, and you'd walk over a field and you wouldn't see it. Yeah. Well, that stone wall, which may be under a meter or so of earth – It affects the overlaying topography, so the roots going down, they couldn't go as deep because they'd be stopped by the stone wall. Hmm. And so processing the satellite data, you can actually map out and see those changes and you start seeing straight lines, and those straight lines form structures which definitely aren't natural. So just as an example, um, we got a hold of new satellite imagery for uh, most of the pyramid fields, and (laughs) when I I started processing it, it, it feels like cheating. You can see everything.
2: How many sites uh, have you guys uh, found using pictures from satellites?
6: I'm at the point where I've lost count. Um, It is in the many thousands, but I I don't know anymore. Wow. I believe we have barely scratched the surface in terms of what's left to discover. In the Egyptian Delta alone, we've excavated less than one one one-thousandth of one percent of the total volume of Egyptian sites. When you add to that the thousands of other sites my team and I have discovered, what we thought we knew pales in comparison to what we have left to discover. When you look at the incredible work that my colleagues are doing all around the world and what they're finding, I believe that there are millions of undiscovered archeological sites left to find. Discovering them will do nothing less then unlock the full potential of our existence.
0: When we come back, we'll hear more from Sarah about how her work can help us all discover more about the planet we call home. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines understands the support small businesses need.
1: Every day, we get the
6: privilege of helping people to recover from the unexpected, realize their dreams, and help manage the risk of everyday life. And for small business owners, we help them to think about all the things that are necessary so that they can continue to run their businesses successfully without interruption. As a business owner myself, I first reflect back to the experiences that I have. So we look at their liability. We look at their retirement. We look at the interruption coverage. Everything that they need in order to continue to operate efficiently.
4: Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manush Zamarodi. And today on the show, ideas for the whole family with my predecessor, Guy Raz. In addition to previously hosting this show, he is the host of the kids' science podcast, Wow in the World. Hey, Guy. Hello. So before the break, we were hearing from you and Sarah Parkak, the space archaeologist, about how many ancient sites she has already begun to uncover using satellite imagery. Let's get back to your conversation with Sarah.
2: All right. I mean, what you're saying is we only know a tiny bit about our past. I mean, is that true? I mean, is most of our history hidden?
6: I would say yes. Because history is always written by the winners. And yeah, people are living in places where they've always lived for thousands of years. Look at places like Rome and Istanbul and Cairo. Those cities are layers upon layers upon layers of of history. So I think we've taken a lot for granted about who we are and where we've come from. We think living in this very modern age with smartphones and the internet and, and sort of this whole world of knowledge at our fingertips, we know everything. Um, But the more and more we delve into the past, the more we realize that we don't and that it has a lot of lessons to teach us for today. I wish for us to discover the millions of unknown archaeological sites around the world by creating a 21st century army of global explorers will find and protect the world's hidden heritage, which contains clues to humankind's collective resilience and creativity. So how are we going to do this? We are going to build an online, crowdsourced citizen science platform to allow anyone in the world to engage with discovering archaeological sites and protect them. By creating this platform, we will find the millions of places occupied by the billions of people that came before us. Acknowledging that the past is worth saving, means so much more. It means that we're worth saving too. And the greatest story ever told is the story of our shared human journey. But the only way that we're going to be able to write it is if we do it together.
0: Thank you. Oh, I love that line where she says, means that we're worth it too. So great. So I have to ask, if you could go on an archaeological dig, the ancient civilization of your choice, yep. where would you go?
2: I think I would want to do something like way, way, way back, like early humans or like our, our, even our human predecessors. There were human-like creatures at least seven or eight million years ago. And, we, and that's what we know of. And we've only discovered, you know, the remains of like a teeny number of human-like species. And and so there's there's like very little doubt that we have so many more to discover like hundreds thousands of species and that would just be amazing to go on one of those digs.
0: I want to call Sarah and ask her if I can go visit one of those places in Peru if she could hook me up. Oh my god. Right? That'd be cool.
2: I know. <laughs> so cool.
0: All right, so we have talked about trees, dolphins and ancient civilizations. But for our final segment, I want to talk to you guys about two words that we say every day, or at least we should say every day. Thank you.
2: Two very simple words. Yes. That are incredibly powerful. And A.J. Jacobs wanted to show how powerful those words were. So he took us all on a journey with him through gratitude.
0: Do you talk to your kids about saying thank you, like please and totally, thank you. all
2: the time. Because
0: I worry that my kids say it, but I'm not sure that they totally mean it. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I think it's natural. We all talk to our kids about saying please and thank you, please and thank you. But um, it has to be more than just saying please and thank you. It's about actually internalizing gratitude, which which is what AJ kind of describes in this in this talk.
1: Yeah, to practice gratitude, you really have to Slow things down and notice.
2: AJ's a writer, professional lifestyle experimenter, and self described
1: curmudgeon. I talk about, I think, in every everyone has the two sides the Larry David side and the Mr. Rogers side. So the, the grumpy pessimist and the optimistic uh, grateful side. So many people have helped me to come to this night. And I believe I was born with a very strong Larry David side. I was very good at finding things to be annoyed about. And I think a lot of us are. If you hear a hundred compliments and a single insult, what do you remember? The insult. Would you just take, along with me, ten seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? I was uh, aware that I had this negative bias, this Larry David side, but I wanted to bulk up the Mr. Rogers side. Ten seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And to most people, I don't think it comes naturally. You have to cultivate this idea of gratitude. Whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. What what
2: happened to you to say, you know, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not appreciating people, I'm not being grateful. Um, was there an epiphany? what What was
1: it? Well, I think it was partly intellectually, I knew the power of gratitude. There are tons of studies about how good it is for you, how it helps ward off depression, you recover more quickly, you sleep better, eat better, you're more generous. So intellectually, I knew, like, I should be grateful. But uh, how do you do that? And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to try this ritual at home where uh, I'm going to try to say thanks to all the people who helped make my meal. A possibility. So I would, I would, before a meal, say, you know, I'd like to thank the farmer who grew the tomato and the cashier who rang the tomatoes up at the grocery store. And that's when my son, who is 10, very perceptively said, you know, Dad, that's fine, but it's also totally lame because those people can't hear you. They're not in our apartment. So if you really are committed, then you should go and thank those people in person.
2: A.J. Jacobs picks up the story from the TED stage.
1: Now, I'm a writer, and for my books, I like to go on adventures, go on quests. So I decided I'm going to take my son up on his challenge. It seemed simple enough, and to make it even simpler, I decided to focus on just one item, my morning cup of coffee. Well, it turned out to be not so simple at all. This quest took me around the world. I discovered that my coffee would not be possible without hundreds of people I take for granted. So I would thank the trucker who drove the coffee beans to the coffee shop. But he couldn't have done his job without the road. So I would thank the people who paved the road. (laughs) And then I would thank the people who made the asphalt for the pavement. He couldn't do his job without the folks who drew the yellow lines on the road because they kept my truck driver from smashing into oncoming traffic. And this is like splitting an atom,
2: right? Because <laughs> you can think the people who mix the paint for the lines on the road and then the people who made the machines to enable the paint to be mixed. And then the people who mined the iron to make the machines to mix the paint and then on
1: and on, right? Like you can – there's lots of people to think. Oh, it's never ending. Infinite. I could have spent the next 50 years of my life thanking people and I could have given a TED Talk that was about 400 hours long because, yeah, that's what it made me realize is how interconnected everything is, how many people it takes. It doesn't just take a village to make a cup of coffee. It takes the world. And uh, it was really a lesson in how interconnected we are and Sort of timely, too, because this trend towards tribalism is, uh, I find, quite disturbing. And this was a reminder of how we all depend on each other. Sometimes
2: a simple act of kindness toward another person, a thank you, a compliment, a vote of confidence, can have a much bigger effect than we realize and can even change the way we look at ourselves. And for A.J. Jacobs, that kind of appreciation turned into a journey of a thousand thank yous,
1: all for just a cup of coffee. I I decided to go backwards. So I started with the barista at Joe Coffee, which is the coffee chain in New York where I go. And I thanked her, and uh, she thanked me for thanking her. What did you say to her? You said, hey, I just want to thank you for making my cup of coffee this morning. That's it. I just yeah, expressed my gratitude. And uh, I think she was pleasantly surprised because she doesn't get thanked all that often. Hmm.
2: All right. So you uh, – so after thanking the barista, I guess you decided to meet with a guy named Ed Kaufman who
1: who works for Joe Coffee. So, yeah, I met Ed Kaufman who is the guy who goes around the world testing the beans, tasting them, and I loved that because he was so passionate about this brown liquid. And I, he taught me how to differentiate the tastes because he would take a, a sip and his face would light up and he would say, oh, I'm sensing honey crisp apple and maple syrup and pineapple upside down cake. And I love that idea of, of savoring and uh, appreciating. It's so tied into gratitude. By the end of the project, I was just in a thanking frenzy. So I, was, I would get up and spend a couple hours. I'd write emails, send notes, make phone calls, visit people to thank them for their role in my coffee. And some of them, quite honestly, not that into it. But most people were surprisingly moved. Every stop on this gratitude trail would give birth to a 100 other people that I could thank. So I went down to Colombia to thank the farmers who grow my coffee beans. And it was in a small mountain town. And I met the farmers, the Guarnizo brothers. It's a small farm. Uh, They make great coffee. They're paid above fair trade prices for it. I thanked them. And they said, well, we couldn't do our job without 100 other people. The machine that depulps the fruit is made in Brazil. the pickup truck they drive around the farm and that is made from parts from all over the world I think in the end they kind of got into the spirit of the project and they did not uh kick me out and uh, they actually invited me back so maybe I'll go and uh, and enjoy their coffee again
2: so as you were like really immersing yourself in this thing right cuz cuz part of this is um, it's like, I'm just going to try this thing out. But but part of you has to become that one. Like, you had to become Mr. Gratitude. Like, you had to believe in it. Almost like it was a religion. Did you start
1: to kind of feel differently on on that trip? Well, yeah. And one of the revelations that runs through many of my projects is just how powerful that is. How much our behavior shapes our thoughts. So I saw this. Like, I would wake up in my typical grumpy mood. And I would force myself to spend an hour writing thank you notes or calling people. And by the end of that hour, my mind had caught up. I had sort of tricked my mind and made it realize, oh, my God, look at all these things that went right. Gratitude should not be the same as complacency, because some people are worried that when you're grateful, like you think, oh, everything's wonderful and Uh, We don't need to change a thing. But my argument, and it's backed up by some fascinating research, is that gratitude actually is the opposite of that. Gratitude makes you more aware and more open to trying to make things better. And I know this personally when I'm in a bad mood. I'm not thinking about other people. I'm just thinking about myself. But when I'm grateful, that's when I realize all of the people who helped make this possible and can I make their lives better.
0: You gotta you gotta <laughs> love AJ Jacobs. Oh, I love him. He always has yeah. this ability to take something like as mundane as saying thank you and turn it into like yeah. a journey. And I do feel like during the pandemic, so many more of us have really begun to be more appreciative and grateful to the people who do bring us all the things we need every day the essential workers in the grocery store i have definitely been making sure to say thank you more and like i now have a slightly creepy habit of waving and smiling at every car that passes (laughs) me when i go for a walk i want to put something good into the world
2: yeah i mean i i totally agree i think it's it's sort of forced us to really reflect on on this idea of showing gratitude. And what I love about AJ Jacobs is he says, you know, gratitude isn't about being optimistic or, you know, saying, oh, the world is great all the time. It actually forces you to, to really actually reflect on the world because mm. when you show gratitude, you're really kind of understanding the process that it took for people to get you... The things that maybe make your life better or more joyful in, in this instance, and the science is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we did an episode on my kids' show Wow in the World about this, mm-hmm. about gratitude. There's a, there was a study out of the University of Montana that showed how when you express gratitude to yourself and to others, mm-hmm. it actually increases your happiness. This has been proven by science, and it's such a wonderful idea. You know, not. Not just to be thankful, not to just sit down and say, I'm thankful for this and thankful for that. But if you can actually thank the people who may not even know that they improve your life, it's incredibly meaningful, not only to them, but but to you as well.
0: Mm, yes, it is. Um I want to say a huge thank you to you, Guy, for coming back on the show, for sharing your favorite ideas for the whole family. And I have to say, listeners have been very, very welcoming to me. But if they're missing you, where can they find you these days?
2: They can find me on How I Built This and on Wow in the World. And I just wanted to thank you for taking this show and making it even more incredible and wonderful and just a joy to listen to. It's, It's awesome. It
0: means a lot. Thank you, Guy. That's my TED Radio Hour predecessor, Guy Raz. He is now the host of the podcast, Wow in the World with Mindy Thomas and the show, How I Built This. And kids, if you want to learn more about all the ideas that Guy and I talked about, we have got some really cool activities for you at ted.npr.org. Plus, you can watch all the talks that Guy mentioned here, too. You got to see the dolphins. Oh, and grownups, you can always see hundreds more TED Talks at TED.com or on the TED app. And now I need to show some gratitude and thank our hardworking production staff here at NPR, which includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkempour, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James DeLahusi, JC Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our theme music was written by Ramteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: She was thinking about Billy Ocean singing Caribbean Queen.
0: Caribbean Queen, now we're we're sharing sharing the the same dreams. dreams. And our hearts can
2: be as as one, one. one. No, no more love love on on the
0: the
2: run. (laughs) Such a good sign.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more.